So it's good to hear that the, uh, the, that the whole team is now on their way back from Africa. Um, there's always something. There's always a, an issue, some kind of a snafu. It seems like something that, uh, that goes on on these trips to Africa. But um, I'm glad to hear that they are on their way now. You know, it is, it is really good to be among God's people today. It's, it's one of those things that brings me great joy to be among you all. Um, it brings me great joy to be among God's people at any time. And really in any place, whether that be here or in community group, at work, uh, even in Africa. Um, there's something special about being together with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm, I'm really excited to hear from the team um, in uh, just the stories that, that happen while you're on these trips. I think if you've ever been on a trip here to Africa, Senegal, or on a mission trip, there's something about it. There's something that's happening there that seems just different than other times. I know that some of um, my most precious memories over the course of the last few years um, would be on some trips to Africa. Um, like I said, there's something special about it. Um, I found it very interesting that it seems as though the acts of the Spirit are so evident while on a trip like that. Um, and, and I've often wondered, why is that? And, and I think, or I believe, that we can take that um, and, and think in terms of it's because of the purpose in my, in my going, the, the very um, reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing. Everyday distractions are set aside. There's been this, there's been this plan in effect for months ahead of time. We've been memorizing um, how, how we might speak to the people, talking about the culture of the people and what we should do, what we shouldn't do, all these kinds of things. There's this singleness of purpose. And, and ultimately, it's interesting, something happens while you're on this trip because there's a singleness of purpose. You're doing the things that you have been called to do to bring the gospel message to, for instance, the people of Senegal. And what do you know? Stuff actually happens, right? Um, and, and the thing that's interesting about that is this same singleness of purpose, this setting aside of distractions, is really the chief exercise of a Christian. It is what we are supposed to be doing. We're to be serving our God and his kingdom each and every day, every day, in and out, mission. So as we look at Paul's letter, Paul writes his letter to the Philippians and he over and over and over points to the purpose of the Christian. That is to worship, to know Jesus, and to make him known. That's the purpose. Last week, Dave kind of outlined a, uh, the first half of the book of Philippians for us. He did a really good job of laying out 
kind of how things have progressed and moved along, and it was the halfway point. And so we're going to start in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 7, which is at basically the halfway point of, the, of this letter. Um, but when Paul writes, uh, he's finishing up uh, kind of some personal uh, things that he's telling the people of Philippi about. He's, he's going to send, and I'm going to mess this guy's name up, um, Ephrodius, I think I got that. Epaphrodius, that's it. Um, he's sending Timothy and Epaphrodius back to, or Epaphrodius, I don't know, it's one or the other. Um, he's sending them back to Philippi, and he's asked them um, that uh, they receive them with honor and, and that sort of thing. The, the theme of the book has been, up until this point, rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. And we're going to get back to that theme here in the third chapter. So, we'll begin with the second half of the letter in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. God's word says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, writes here regarding gains and losses. Lord, help us to take, take the time to really consider where we stand before you. We stand in a position of great gain. And Christ has taken the losses. So, Father, uh, help us to um, recognize that, recognize that truth in our daily lives, recognize that Jesus Christ is the reason why we have any hope of any future with you. Lord, we know that all all men will live eternally. It's just a matter of where we will live. So, Father, we thank you that in your ledger, in your book of record, our sins have been blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ. For those who know him, you've done this thing for us. So, Father, help us now. Recognize the truth 
that it is only through His grace that this is possible. And so, Father, we thank you. Just ask that you would help our eyes to see and our ears to hear your truth and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 1, Paul's statement, rejoice in the Lord. You're kind of back on the theme of the book of Philippians. Uh, it is in, written in the imperative voice, meaning that it's a command. It's, it's not an option. This in and of itself seems a little interesting. It, makes, it begs a question. If joy, because I mean most people I think today would think of joy being as kind of an emotion. Um, if, if joy is an emotion, then how can a person be commanded to have it? If joy, like happiness, is dependent upon circumstances, then Paul, is Paul commanding us to always put ourselves in a position where our circumstances are in a favorable environment, favorable, favorably, uh, favorable to our desires? I, I, I doubt it. But like sand in our hands... Um, circumstances are a poor source of our happiness. Many people live with this particular mindset that um, if I can just control or create the circumstances that would be favorable for me, um, I, then I can provide joy for myself and or those that are around me. And it sounds noble, but frankly, it's, it's a fool's errand because that's just not how things work. Circumstances always can change. So the answer to the question is that joy is not an emotion. And it's certainly not dependent on our circumstances, but rather it is our perspective on those circumstances. It's like the little boy that uh, has a fever and mom keeps him home from school and she's terribly worried about her son and his fever and all that sort of thing and he's giddy at the idea that he doesn't have to go to school now, right? It's a matter of perspective. How, do one, how does one see the problem or see anything for that matter? Paul makes clear in this command that, uh, well, exactly what the source of that joy is. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Just before that command, the very first word that he says in verse 1 is finally. Now, this is often the word that many may be sitting in the room are waiting for the preacher to say because it means that lunch is coming soon, right? Um, but that's not really what Paul's talking about here. As a matter of fact, um, the final finally that Paul talks about doesn't happen until next chapter. Um, Philippians 4, 8. And then like a good pastor, like any good pastor, it takes him quite a little time even after that to actually finish up. Right? So Paul instructs the church there uh, at the end of, if we go back and take a look, at the end of chapter 2, he's giving instructions. Um, and one of those instructions is receive uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, um, and, and gives him honor, right? Then he says, verse 1, finally, 
rejoice in the Lord. So among all those other things, this is the final thing I want you to really do, and that is rejoice in the Lord. Um, This message, to rejoice in the Lord, is repeated again and again and again in Paul's letters. And as an example, we can look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Paul's letter to the Philippians here uses the Greek word for joy or rejoice 16 times in 104 verses. So, I mean, one could even say that Philippians is, is possibly the most, most joy-filled book of the Bible. And from that, we, we can see then that as we look at those, those items I just talked about, the mark of a Christian is to rejoice in the Lord with a singleness of purpose and a confidence in our place as children of God through Jesus Christ. Paul repeats this message over and over. As I said, he even says it in the message that he's repeating it. If we look at the NASB uh, and the second half of verse 1, it says things a little bit different, which gives it a little better uh, understanding, at least for me, it did. It's translated to write the same things to you again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. See, the job of the minister is to proclaim the same message over and over. That's what's done week after week up here. Literally, the same message. It's the gospel. So I, I don't know about you, but based on how often... I need to hear it. Um, I believe that's one of the reasons why Paul is saying what he is saying here. You know, I don't know about you. I don't think there's anyone that, well, maybe, but I doubt it, that that would say, I mean, I don't know if you've ever said it or heard somebody say, man, if if, if I hear that gospel message one more time, my head is going to explode. Now, there have been plenty of times that I've had the gospel message placed before me when I did not want to hear it. All that really meant was I needed to hear it, and I needed to hear it again, right? The, uh, I mean, it's good to be reminded again of the things that we've been taught. How often do you tell your child, that's hot, don't touch? Any idea of a number? Anyone? No? Yeah, you say it again and again. Um, either we forget or we are often occupied having our, our thoughts sidetracked 
where other things are vying for our attention, and so much so that we lose track of what is the true priority. Unlike the being on mission, whether that be Africa, South America, wherever, unlike that, we're now back in life, and the distractions are all there. There's always something that comes up, and the priorities constantly shift. Paul's not the only one that talks about this repetition. We can see this in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 13. Peter says a similar thing. He says in t- verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. As long as he's alive, he's going to continue to do it because it has that much value. Then we see in verse 2, Paul gives warnings. He says, look out, look out, look out. Or in some translations, beware. And what is it that he's saying to beware of? The dogs. He's saying, beware of the evildoers. Beware of of the mutilators of the flesh. Then, following that, he presents this contrast, comparing those that are the circumcised to those that are spiritually circumcised or what he calls the true circumcision. But let's take a a little closer look at these dogs because this is very harsh language, it seems, uh, coming from Paul towards these individuals. Um, But the dogs of the day, the dogs at the time, the dogs in the Near and Middle East, some uh, in Asia, even today, Uh, They're not the same little fluffy, domesticated type dogs that you might have sitting on, you know, your couch at home. These these dogs are um, these dogs are the dogs that are scavengers. They live on the streets. They're dangerous. They're half wild, Um, and they're constantly looking to fill their bellies. Uh, they're looking to satisfy their appetite at any cost. Another scripture in which we see these, the, the term dogs, evildoers, used in a very similar context, we go back to Psalms 22, verses 16 through 20, where we read another reference. It's very similar. And, it, and verse 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. Now, obviously, we recognize this is a prophetic psalm speaking of the very thing that happens to our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But the dogs... They encompass me. These are the individuals that are scavengers. These are the individuals that are looking to satisfy themselves at whatever cost. <coughs> Here we go with the cough. <clears throat> okay. Um, these dogs, they were not the domestic 
little addition to the family that we know of them to be today. Paul is comparing the false teachers who followed him, him around in his ministry looking to devour new believers with their form of religion that perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Although it seems to be harsh words from Paul, it's actually a very fitting description of the people who teach false religion and a salvation of works. Evildoers perverting the message of the gospel. These people are those who pride themselves on their supposed works of righteousness, but in reality, these are works of self-righteousness, which results, in scripture after scripture, of God's condemnation and judgment. Paul had in mind the Judaizers who wanted to mix Christianity and Judaism and then proclaiming that they, they would proclaim that the physical mutilation of the body, physical circumcision, was a way to receive approval before God. So it was Jesus plus something. I think that still happens today, right? It's Jesus plus something. It disregards the very words of Jesus. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am the way and circumcision. He doesn't say, I am the way and this particular day of the week. He doesn't say any of those things. But we love to add our little piece so it makes us feel better, I think. I don't know. But it still goes on today. Still an ongoing problem. And it still needs to be called out. So the Judaizers were so caught up in their piety that they had blinded themselves to the truth and the life. Of all people, Paul understands this position. The gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in him alone, causes the true circumcision. It cuts one to the heart and through the power of the Holy Spirit allows one to worship in spirit. If we look back what we just read in Romans 5, that is exactly what that says. That God pours out his spirit into our hearts. The true circumcision. So the Judaizers are pushing their external religion on the very ones who are the true circumcision. It's really quite sad and ironic when you think of it like that. In verse 3, we are the true circumcision and who worship, who glory in Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying here that the circumcision is no longer a physical ritual. It has been replaced by the new covenant of Jesus Christ and is a spiritual thing. 
To worship and to glory and to have no confidence in the flesh is a matter of the head and the heart. Once the heart's been cut wide open, we have conversion. Once the conversion is in place, suddenly our eyes are open and our head can see and we can hear what we once could not. And then, following that, the natural outworking of what Christ has done in us goes to the hands. Now begins the work, right? So the mission of the Christian is to glory in Christ Jesus. One of the definitions of the word glory is a state of great gratification or exaltation. Considering what we face without him, can we not glory in the outpouring of his love toward us? Is this where you live? Where you find your heart today? Jesus, in the book of John, finds himself in a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. As she attempts to divert his attention away from her sins, that he so clearly pointed out, she begins, uh, she begins by bringing up the Samaritan's contention that Samaria was the proper place of worship, not Jerusalem. And Jesus says in John 4, 23 and 24, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus could have said this the same thing easily to, all, to the Jews at the time, but he happening, happening, happens to be talking with the Samaritan woman. It's the same truth. The gospel. Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the one who gives us this new life. Jesus Christ is the good news. He's the gospel. This is the truth that we should be living in and we should be glorying in also. I mean, when I stop and think, uh, man, I had to be very careful uh, just before coming up here, standing there singing a song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I can't, um, I can't think of that too much why I'd have never made it up here. Um, do we glory in Christ like that? We really should. The greater tra tragedy is that many Christians today have fallen into the same error and have looked to replace personal worship of our Lord with liturgies and activities whose meanings have been long forgotten. I'm not saying, however, that ceremonies or rituals are wrong in and of themselves. In fact, I, I can't say that because it, it is... Uh, commanded by God that we have them. The practices, uh, ordinances of baptism and communion as examples, we have to do them. The problem is that when they become routine, ritual, uh, it's one of the things that we say on the, uh, on the trip in Africa, that you know the, the acts became a ritual. Well, when that happens, there's, there's no longer meaning in it. So we have to just be careful, be mindful of that. 
not take part in um, making something so routine that we no longer consider why we are doing what we're doing. And then the mission of the Christian is to worship by the Spirit of God. To glory in Jesus Christ is pretty straightforward for me, but when we get to this worshiping by the Spirit thing, it seems a little less obvious. Um, is this our spirit or God's spirit? Um, is there any real physical activity on my part whatsoever? Uh, Jesus, Jesus' memorable, memorable statement in John 3, 6 does help with this. And, and, and that is where he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It's not either or, it's a both and. For those who are new creatures in Christ, our spirit owes its existence and vibrancy to the Spirit of God. And John Piper says in the book Desiring God, he says, um, true worshiper or true worship comes only from spirits made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit ignites and energizes our spirit. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no spirit or a, a spirit that's alive in us at all. I mean, we were born of the flesh. We are born in sin. Um, as, as we are made new creatures in Christ, the spirit of God is imparted to us, giving us the ability to worship as Jesus explains to the woman at the well. The Father is seeking such worshipers. In verse, verses 4 through 6, we're given a short autobiography of, of Paul's credentials. Paul certainly has reason to boast. Circumcised on the eighth day. So, I, I mean, I'm thinking about um, people at, in this time period in villages, farmers just scattered around the countryside, and um, life is just going on. And uh, this is uh, obviously around the time that Rome has, has power, um, possibly even the temple has now been destroyed, records are burned and torched, and so do you really know you were circumcised on the eighth day? I mean, do you really know that? Paul did. His parents were Jews, both. His father, Pharisee. He knew that he was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law. Of the people of Israel, his parents are both Jews. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's another question of the people of the day. Did they all truly know of what tribe they, their lineage came from? Paul did. He was certain of it. As a matter of fact, the tribe of Benjamin, the first king of Israel, came from that tribe, and his name was Saul. Happens to be Paul's name prior to him becoming Paul. Paul. 
He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, strict adherence to the laws of Moses. So much so that the, that laws were created to keep the laws that they were supposed to keep. Very strict. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, we're actually introduced to Saul before he had his name changed to Paul in Acts 7, verse 58. He stands by watching the stoning of Stephen in approval. Very much against the church. Very much against these Christians that are proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. <coughs> Pardon me. Oh, um, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. The laws that were expected of him to keep as a Pharisee, the laws that he was expected to follow, he did. But, thinking about it, not all of this list is, is, would be considered negative. Is it, is it bad to keep God's law? Not at all. Is it, is it bad to even have zeal? No, not necessarily, depending on where that's directed. The issue is to whom is the glory given and to what are we worshiping in it? In, verses, uh, in verse 7, Paul tells us what he now believes regarding his accomplishments in comparison to what he has been given in Christ. As a matter of fact, a few more verses after verse 7, the section of Scripture we're in, actually says that he counts it all as rubbish to have gained Christ. So the means to growth in the Christian life is to glorify in Christ Jesus, to, I mean to glory in Christ Jesus, to worship in the Spirit of God, and to have no confidence apart from Jesus Christ. The last point Paul makes here is, in this section of Scripture, is that true believers do not put their confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers that Paul was battling with, they did. But as we already pointed out, there is no good work that can be done to earn God's favor. For all, for all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. Isaiah 54.6. Paul uses himself as an example of this. Excuse me. <clears throat> if Paul were to compare himself to the dogs, to the evildoers, and to the mutilators of the flesh or the false circumcision on the same basis or scale that the, that the Judaizers were using, he would have reason to have confidence and to boast. For he far surpassed them in their deeds of the flesh. Paul knew what the dogs, the evildoers, and the mutilators of the flesh were like because he had been one of them. 
Sorry. <clears throat> he also had the experience of actually being able to be the true circumcision. Worshipping in the spirit and placing no confidence in the flesh. Paul had been to the Damascus Road. He had been radically saved. That is why he can say in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Nothing compares to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing. But we need to look out, look out. I need to look out. (laughs) Because the very idea that I had anything to do with any of the blessings I enjoy today is a dangerous place for me to be. It rejects the imputation of righteousness by God's decree based solely on his grace and solely on faith in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't take credit for what happened to him on the Damascus Road. He just obeys. He has no confidence in his pedigree or his accomplishment. He shows us over and over, rejoice in the Lord and place your confidence in Christ alone. So in closing, I was going to say finally, but (coughs) in closing, true joy can only be found in Jesus Christ. Happiness is is fleeting because it is based on circumstances. Circumstances are constantly changing, but peace, contentment, satisfaction, they're possible when your circumstances are viewed through the lens of a gospel perspective. Christian, you can have, you can actually rejoice in any situation, including those that are personally painful. We look at Paul telling these people rejoice in the Lord and he's sitting in prison. Because when we glory in Christ and we worship by the Spirit, we find our true confidence and our eternal hope. And so while I was studying, kind of preparing for this sermon, one of the things that kept popping in my head um, was a hymn. And I couldn't, I couldn't think of the name of the hymn. Um, so I had to look it up. And, and I didn't even really recognize the name of the hymn. It's called The Heavenly Vision. And uh, it's the first line of the chorus that would be familiar to probably most of you because that's what I kept humming in my head. And it goes like this, and I'm not going to sing it, but it goes like this. Um, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look fully in his wonderful uh, face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, on these trips to Africa... On these mission trips, like I said, things seem different, and they are. Because I'm different when I'm on these trips. I'm focused. I have a singular view. It doesn't even matter. I mean, there's kids running all over the place. 
my whole game plan is not happening at all. This is what I was going to do. This is what was going to happen. None of that's happening. I'm trying to recite something I've memorized, and when I memorized it, didn't realize that there's an interpreter involved here, right? So I get to say two, three words, and then the interpreter says something, and then some kid dumps a drink over here, and then the, you know, the goat runs through, and here comes the camel spider between my legs, you know, um, and, oh, yeah, what's the next line? Um, and people come to know Christ. Get me out of it, right? It's amazing. It truly is amazing. Then I come home, and I say, I don't see this. I don't see the same thing. What's wrong? Something's wrong. What's wrong is my heart is not directed like it should be. The only source of true joy is a personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, realizing that he is the one that does this work. Even if I had a plan and I executed it, I'd jack it up. I, you know, I know. But where do you find your confidence? And what is it that you glory in? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we just uh, thank you.